following sermon was delivered at the 1030 worship service at the United Methodist Church of Kent. Please enjoy. The sermon this morning entitled The Sinful Saints is the conclusion of a sermon series entitled Old Words, New Life, Transformative Teachings from the Old Testament. Christians often prefer the New Testament to the Old, but one of the fundamental principles of Bible study is that we can only understand the New Testament when we also understand the Old, because the New Testament is based squarely upon an Old Testament foundation. Jesus regularly referred to the Old Testament, and New Testament writers frequently quote Old Testament passages and make reference to Old Testament figures. A prime example, that was the passage we heard this morning from the New Testament letter of the Hebrews. In chapter 11 of that letter, the writer begins to talk about living in faith. The chapter starts, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith, our ancestors received approval. The writer of the Hebrews will talk about faith by looking at our spiritual ancestors, which for him meant looking to Old Testament figures. You have to know something about those Old Testament figures in order to understand what he's talking about. The insights that the author of Hebrews lifts up in chapter 11 are very important for our own spiritual journey. And the message is especially relevant on an All Saints Sunday. Let's be for a moment in the spirit of prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Will Willimon, who was one of my professors at Duke University and who later became the chaplain to the university and then uh, eventually a bishop, once wrote an article about the saints that was published in Christian Century magazine. Willimon said, Saints are our great-great-grandparents, and we are their children in the faith. But people who actually know something about the Bible may be less than pleased to have a Samson or a Sarah as a grandparent. They may look saintly in stained glass windows, but in their day, few called them saints. People look more saintly after they have been dead a thousand years. But if you had to live with them or stare at them across the breakfast table rather than across a Gothic-style church, you might question why they are our saints. In Hebrews chapter 11, we are provided with a list of Old Testament saints, Old Testament figures who are supposed to be examples of living in faith. The greatest concentration of names is in the passage that we heard, which says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had received the spies in peace. And time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, escaped the edge of the sword, or made strong out of weakness, put foreign armies to flight. Looking at this list, what is immediately striking is that this is a motley crew. For example, Jephthah is on the list. Jephthah was one of the so-called judges of Israel who provided leadership during the time period before the time of the kings. The book of Judges describes how Jephthah was once facing a military challenge and he vowed that if God would give him the victory, he would sacrifice the first one to come out of the door of his house when he came home. 
right here, you begin to get the picture that this guy, Jephthah, is a real idiot. And his religious ideas were thoroughly messed up. He never should have made a vow like this in the first place. It is thought that Jephthah lived in a type of Old Testament house in which farm animals as well as people lived in the same house. So he was very likely thinking it'd be one of the animals that would be the first one to come out the door. But when he returned home after a great victory, the first one to come out of the door of his house was his daughter who came to greet him with timbrels and dancing. He ended up fulfilling his vow, which his daughter, his only child, agreed he must do. Jephthah's daughter might qualify for sainthood, but Jephthah himself seems to belong in the Fool's Hall of Fame. But the other names on the list in Hebrews don't get much better. There is Samson, for example. I talked at length about Samson in a sermon at the beginning of this sermon series. Samson, in the process of feuding with the Philistines, bashed all kinds of people's heads in, and he once avenged himself on the Philistines by tying lighted torches to the tails of 300 foxes and sending them running through the Philistine grain fields, making him not especially popular amongst all those who would be kind to animals. Then he allowed himself to be deceived and betrayed by a loose woman named Delilah. What kind of a saint is that? Then on the list of ancient worthies, we also find David. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, then had her husband Uriah killed in the process of trying to cover over the fact that David had made Bathsheba pregnant. Also on the list is Rahab, a prostitute. Gideon and Barak are on the list. They appear early in the book of Judges, and they were at least better than Jephthah or Samson, but they were both quite flawed. Gideon repeatedly asked for signs from God because he had a hard time believing in what God was telling him. And Barak was so unsure in his faith, he only succeeded because of strong and steady support from the best of the judges, Deborah. Deborah is not in the list in Hebrews, which further accents the fact that the writer of Hebrews was picking his examples from the bottom of the barrel. The most exemplary person of faith on our list in Hebrews is Samuel, but even Samuel was far from perfect. Later in life, after he had anointed Saul to be king under God's instruction, Samuel had a hard time relinquishing power to Saul, and he later undermined Saul, contributing to Saul's eventual downfall. You begin to wonder what the author of Hebrews was thinking. Why did he lift up such people as being our forebears in faith? Certainly the author of Hebrews was not ignorant of the true nature of these people's lives because their deeds and their sins and their stupidities are presented in thorough and blunt detail in the Bible, which does not present anything as though through rose-tinted glasses. In reflecting about the book of Hebrews, it becomes clear that the author intentionally singled out such obviously fallible persons for mention in order to make a key point. The central message of Hebrews chapter 11 is that all these persons lived by faith, however imperfectly, and they finally were saved by their faith. 
it was obviously not because they lived perfect lives or had all the right religious ideas that they ended up being a part of God's kingdom. The point is that God was able to take even the most flawed persons in spite of their most horrible blunders and God was able to include them finally in God's purposes. Each person had serious weaknesses and made big mistakes, but each person finally trusted in God and in God's grace, and God gave each one a meaningful place in God's eternal kingdom. In this regard, the book of Hebrews brings a message of tremendous hope to you and me. No matter how stupid a thing we might ever do, it can hardly be more foolish than what Jephthah did. No matter how wrong a thing we might have done, it can hardly be more wrong than what David did. No matter how blind or deaf we may be at times to God, we can hardly be more thick-headed than Samson was. Yet if God accepted these persons and made something very good out of their lives, then God can do the same with us. Indeed, it's striking to notice in Hebrews chapter 11 that in the references to these persons, the bad things in their lives have just disappeared from view. Their lives of faith are celebrated and their sins seem to have been blotted out. That is precisely what God does with us. When we come to God in faith, God in forgiveness and love wipes away our sins and failings and God brings us in spite of our shortcomings into the community of the saints. Here it is apparent that the saints are not spiritual giants who overshadow ordinary people with their great righteousness. The saints are ordinary people who place their faith in the Lord. Some of the saints might live lives that are particularly inspiring to others and we might especially be inclined to think of those persons as saints but such persons are able to live inspiring lives only because of their faith in God. The fact is that all of us, when we place our faith in the Lord, are among the saints. If you don't think of yourself as a saint, you don't think you qualify, just take another look at Jephthah or Rahab. It is not our righteousness that puts us among the saints, it is God's grace that brings us into the kingdom, all of us even in our imperfections, can have a place in the family of God because God gives us a place. This grace of God, the fact that God loves us even with all our flaws and forgives us when we fail, is something that's very important to keep in mind, not only for ourselves, but also for the whole church. Sometimes people get the idea that the church is supposed to be a marvelously righteous community, and they then can get disillusioned when they find imperfections, failings, and less than upright behavior amongst people in the church. But the church, the people of God, has always consisted of Jephthahs and Samsons and Davids and Gideons. It is a mix of ordinary people who, with all their fallibility, are made into God's family by grace. We can find joy and fellowship together then, as we show towards one another the same kind of grace that God shows toward us. So it is that stories in the Old Testament provide enduring lessons for life today, something we've been observing throughout this sermon series. 
But there's a feature in the Old Testament that is also made very clear in the letter to the Hebrews, and that is that the Old Testament is incomplete by itself. When speaking of those Old Testament figures in chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews describes them at the end of that chapter as journeying toward a future promise that they never in their own lives saw. The chapter concludes, all these, though commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better. That something better, the thing promised, would be the fullness of grace and life that would come to the whole world finally through Jesus Christ. Old Testament people would finally be saved by virtue of what Christ does on the cross. Something I'll be talking about in the next book that we're publishing, that'll be out in about a month. The author of Hebrews, after giving us all these Old Testament examples, thus points us finally to Christ, as he wrote. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. It is in Christ that we can know ourselves to be forgiven and a part of God's eternal kingdom. Martin Luther, during the Protestant Reformation, had as one of his major slogans the idea that a Christian is simultaneously a sinner and a saint. That is a truth that is deeply embedded in Hebrews and in the entire Bible. The saints have all been sinners. We never stop being sinners because we are always imperfect. Yet through faith, we are reconciled with God and declared by God's grace to be saints. As the book of Hebrews said concerning those flawed Old Testament characters, by faith, our ancestors received approval. One way we can experience that mercy of God is through the sacrament of communion. In communion, we are invited to come as we are to the Lord's table, and there by the grace of Christ, we are accepted into God's presence, the elements of communion being a sign of our fellowship in God's kingdom. In communion today, we can rejoice as we are included in the company of the saints. Let us pray. Eternal God, we give thanks that you reach out to us so marvelously through that fullness of grace that you give us in Jesus Christ. You are here to be at work in us with forgiveness, with renewing power, with guidance to lead us to be able to live as your people, to share in your purposes in our time. Move us, O oh Lord, to respond in faith, to open ourselves to how you would touch our lives, to receive that spirit to work in us, giving us the assurance of our acceptance with you, filling us with the power of your grace and strength, giving us the vision of your everlasting promises. We thank you, Lord, that you draw us together in the life of your church, that together as a part of your family, we can grow in faith and we can reach out in compassion to the world. We do reach out to persons at times of particular need. Remember those who've been dealing with illness, those dealing with surgeries, praying especially this morning for Sally Ruckman, for Karen Beck and for Alexis Phillips, praying for your ongoing healing power. 
And we thank you for the broader church, lift up especially our fellow United Methodists at the Firestone Park United Methodist Church. Lead us, Lord, as we rejoice that we have a place among the saints as we look to you, O Lord, in trust and as we lift our lives to you in thankfulness and praise. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this edition of the United Methodist Church of Kent Sermon Podcast. For more information about the church, visit www.kentmethodist.org.